0: Hello, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadoulou. The physician Siddhartha Mukherjee is widely recognized as the greatest science writer of our times. He follows his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Emperor of All Maladies, and New York Times bestseller, The Gene, an Intimate History, with The Song of the Cell, a mesmerizing history of cell biology that transports readers from Restoration London. To the birth of a revolutionary new kind of medicine, he joined us live on stage in conversation with geneticist, broadcaster, and former guest on this podcast, Adam Rutherford.
1: Let me just start with a few biographical questions yes. because you, people know your work here, bestsellers in the UK as well, shortlisted for the Royal Society Book Prize and the Welcome Book Prize, but maybe they don't know you as well because you're you live in New York. So why don't you give us a sort of two-minute potted biography of how you get from Bengal via Delhi to New York back to London.
2: <laughs> well, I, I was my family is Bengali. I was not born in Bengal. I was born in Delhi uh, and went to school there. Then went to Stanford, of all places, in California um, as an undergraduate. Worked in Paul Berg's lab, um, which is, of course, very much part of the, the book on genetics.
1: Paul Berg... First person to do genetic engineering in the world, 1973. Nobel Prize in 1980?
2: Mm, nah, a little later, I want to say. My, yeah. So it's a good lab, anyway, the pointers, yeah. <laughs> but then came, I was a Rhodes Scholar, came to Oxford and was there for three years, studied immunology with Alan Townsend, who's in this book. Alan is a close friend. Paul's also a close friend. Paul's 90. I'm having dinner with him next week. And uh, Paul loves to have bets. And every, every time I see him, he, he has a bet with me about something or the other. and could be completely, completely random. Um, and and the, the loser takes the winner out to dinner. And this has been going on for 10 years. But anyway, so Paul Berg then came to Allen Townsend. Townsend. Wait, I
1: want to know what the bets are. And,
2: one and actually who's actually. winning? <laughs> well, this time, actually, I won. The bet was actually an interesting bet. The bet was that the Nobel Prize for the discovery of CRISPR would be either awarded just to Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who are actually close friends of mine, versus it would be split three ways, because there's an option of splitting it three ways, um, to someone else. And Paul chose the three, so he had a winner's advantage, because it could be anyone. Uh And I said just Jennifer and Emmanuel. I I thought that the the discovery was, was so Momentous, it would be just Jennifer and Emmanuel. And I won. Uh, but now
1: you have to pay for dinner in Oxford.
2: No, no, he has to pay for dinner. Oh,
1: because if, you if, won. Yeah, won. yeah, I got yes, it. it. He yeah, has to pay for dinner. That's a much better
2: deal. I, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, back to biography. Um, I, so then I went, I was, at, um, I was at Stanford and came to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Lived in Oxford for three years, worked with Alan. Then went to Harvard Medical School where I trained in medicine first. Ran the emergency room for about six months, uh, which was uh, a frightening experience. Uh, I think more frightening for the patients than for me. And then um, did my fellowship in cancer biology, cancer medicine. But I had already had my PhD from Oxford, so I was an immunologist by training. And so after all of that, launched my own laboratory at Columbia, where I teach and write and do various other things. It's
1: kind of revolting how overqualified you you are.
2: <laughs> well, it, um, I suppose it can be revolting, but it didn't feel revolting when I was uh, <laughs> when I was uh, doing those things.
1: And so, so in order to get to this book, let's, let's just quickly go go through the other the other two books. So, as you are a cancer specialist, you're an oncologist, you're a practicing doctor to this day. When you're not writing best-selling books. But um, the first book, *The Emperor of All Maladies*, which was a huge, mega international bestseller. That is the subtitle is a biography of, of cancer. So, what was it that 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 you wanted to explore in your field, as an expert? Well, it, in that you book?
2: know, to some extent, *The Emperor* was a, um, was, written because it wasn't there. When, I mean, obviously we're living in an age of cancer. I mean, the word. Appears every day in the in, in every newspaper, and when you look around, when I looked around, this was um, in two thousand. When I started writing the book was two thousand and six. Um, when I looked around, there was no history of it. Um, where had it come from? Where were we going? And it was inspired by a patient's question. She said, and she was asking a question about her own journey. She said, "How did I get here, and where am I going?" But if you take that question very broadly um, and think about how did we get here and where are we going, it becomes The Emperor of All Maladies, it becomes that book. And so that was the inspiration for, for that book. It was, a, it, it, it was that, that, that book was trying to fill a void. And to some extent, the gene also was trying to fill a void um, because it seemed to me that there had been, of course, very, very good books on, on genetics uh, before, but it had, but they had sort of lapsed in the post, um, what I would call the post-genomic era, in, in the era of sequencing whole genomes and, and CRISPR um, and all the um, vast landscape of both therapeutic and mm. ethical issues that, were, that had been brought up by that. And there, there was also, I think, which you know very well from your most recent book, there was also a, a, a lack... Um, we were just talking about this, a lack of understanding of the, of the very complex and potentially discomforting uh, birth of genetics, human genetics in particular, uh, which is through eugenics and Gorton and, and others that you mentioned in your, in your new book. And it was as if that part of the history had been erased mm-hmm. and um, genetics all of a sudden sprang like you know, out of Zeus's head in, in you know, 1920 or something like that, when, in fact, its origins are very much in the pre-war era with um, a, a, a very uncomfortable history of, of, of the idea of human selection and human genetics. So genetics fill that void, and we'll just talk about the void that this book fills as well. Yeah, well, I think
1: one of the things that is a common theme in all three books is that you write from the perspective of a scientist and a science historian, but also as a clinician. And that, that I think, is, is kind of unique to your work, that, that, that so many of the themes that are... Well, obviously, in a book about cancer, it's about patients, but in the gene, it also relates to disease and treating patients, and in this book, in The, the Song of the Cell as well. There, a lot of it's the history, which I find absolutely fascinating and, and, and teach and have studied myself. But then there's this other dimension to it, which is how the history and the basic science and the genetics, how that actually relates to patients, to disease.
2: Yes, and and I think the the important thing in these books... Well, first of all, I should say that the the books are written... If one were to reread the books, and eventually I hope they'll be compiled into a quartet, if there's a quartet, there's a book after this. I'm only saying that because when uh, the emperor won the Guardian Book Prize, um, there was a snarky review that said... Um, this should have been called the Guardian only book prize because he's <laughs> done with anything he has to ever write. But that was not the case, obviously. But but the, all of that said, I think I make, a, in all three books, in fact, the gene probably should come first because it is, of course, the single smallest unit of information, uh, the code. The cell probably comes next. Um, and emperor comes last because it's about when cells go wrong and physiology gets affected. So that's one important piece. But I think probably the most uh, important idea that runs through these books, and I'll introduce it early in the conversation, is the distinction between disease and desire. And that's very important for me as a thinker, but also important for us as a society, and also important for me as a clinician uh, and as a doctor, because we have drawn historically very strong uh, boundaries between disease and desire. And I'll, by it's quite ob- obvious, but I'll explain it a little bit anyway. But disease, of course, is, is, is fundamentally linked to the idea of suffering. And we have understood disease uh, for, for generations since the beginning of, of human history. Desire is, is linked to some idea of enhancement or augmentation, something that we cannot do, that we want to do. And I would suggest that really for centuries, these lines were relatively easily drawn, uh, the line between disease and desire. But now, um, as we invade biology uh, with more and more precision, but but more and more audacity, um, I think these lines are being rapidly blurred. And that's why I think these books need to enter the conversation because, because those lines are extraordinarily important to draw and if you don't draw them I think many things that we understand about the world will change and perhaps not for the better
1: Okay, well let, let's, let's talk about the Song of the Cell let's get really stuck into it because that's why you're here and that's, that's the book that we're talking about. Um, we will get to during the course of this conversation, we want to talk about the therapies and, yeah. the, and the, the desires and all of those things that you've just mentioned. But let's, let's talk about the history because the history is yes. fascinating. Yes. But even before we get to that, I think we should establish some ground rules about what we mean when we're talking about cells. Because I know we have spent a lot of our lives staring at these pretty un, often pretty unremarkable sort of translucent globs down yes. microscopes. And maybe you did when you, I don't know, sliced up an onion at GCSE Biology or did some hematology or something like that. And I don't know, they look... They, they, they can be pretty unremarkable. And yet, they are the basic unit of life, full of diversity, active cities buzzing with action. They are where life exists.
2: And I think you made a very important point, both in your program and just now, which is that that is absolutely true, but bizarrely enough, uh, they've been sort of neglected. I wouldn't say, of course, not neglected in the literature, in the scientific literature. I'm a cell biologist. But, but if you... If you I, I was walking past, um, I, I told you this in the program, a Brazilian Botox clinic called Life. I wasn't getting Botox, but... Um, but really? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it had a picture of DNA on it. Um, so every time you go through anything that's called life, you know, a magazine cover on life, etc., etc., it'll have the iconic double helix on it. But of course, the, the a ge- which is the you know DNA contains the information for genetics for genes. But what's interesting, and what you realize quite obviously when you think about it, DNA is a molecule. It doesn't. It's lifeless. It is not life. Uh, it is only brought to life by a cell. A cell interprets DNA in the same way that a musician interprets a score. A score is not music. It's the musician playing the music that is music, hence the song of the cell. But, so it's the cell that really where, is where life begins in some ways, it, if you want to think about life. And we, I thought you put it very nicely in, in the program that, that there are really three foundational pieces of all biology. And by foundational pieces, they, they are so universal that they, that they span the entire biological universe as we know it. The number one being the universality of, of, genet, of the genetic code and, and genetics. There are variations on the theme, but essentially the universality of it. The second is cell theory, the fact that all organisms, regardless of whether you're an elephant or a bacterium, you're made of a cell. Um, and the third, of course, is evolution. Now, evolution has a 1,000 books written on it. Genetics has... 2,000 books, not including mine. What's interesting is that there wasn't, or there really isn't, a kind of similar book about the importance of the third pillar of, of all life. So unremarkable or remarkable as it is, the cell is remarkable. It is, the, it is the smallest living unit of life, and that thing you saw, that blob you saw um, under a microscope or a much more complex cell like the one that lives in your brain, does things. Uh, it's the actor. It's the doer. It's the maker. Um, the, sometimes the teacher. Um, that's responsible for for everything that 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 we do, or be, or our our, our, our whole being. And so, therefore, I mean, you, you're exactly right. I mean, it, what looks s- sometimes unremarkable is really the centre of all all all, all being.
1: There, there is a reason why I use that analogy. It's not the first time. And it basically is me ribbing physicists, because physicists have been trying to come up with a grand unifying theory of everything for about <laughs> 3,000 years, something <laughs> like that. And we got all of ours in the space of about 100 years <laughs> within the last two centuries. But let, So let's talk about that, then, because the history is fascinating, that, that this unit of life, which is universal, all life is made of cells, and there's a second rule the, of cell theory, which we'll come to in a minute. But no one's actually seen one. Until 1673, something yes, 16, like that? Yes, yes. And what was life made of before we saw that?
2: Well, people, lots of people, had lots of theories about life. I mean, they, the, the, idea, the idea was that life or flesh was continuous. Um, we were essentially slabs of meat, but without anything underneath the slabs of meat. We were just continuous slabs of meat, uh, thinking slabs of meat, but slabs of meat nevertheless. And um, it wasn't until Robert Hooke looked down through his microscope and found, you know, Hooke, Hooke was an incredible character. Um, so so there, there's Hooke. He comes from a, a relatively poor family, gets a scholarship to Wadham College, and then becomes an apprentice. And what's amazing about Hooke, I, 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 I quote him and I say his, his, um, his intelligence was... Phosphorescent and elastic like a rubber band that glows while it stretches and that's partly because hook was hooked onto everything he was a Physicist um, there's a little bit of a joke in that line. He was actually Elastic he invented the laws of elasticity. He was a physicist. He was a chemist. He was a As I will say a biologist an architect a you know name it he did it and he published a book called Micrographia in which he looked down his microscope and started studying small things, starting with ants and pests and things like that. And in one of those studies, he cut a piece of cork and he put it under the microscope and he didn't see cells because the cork was dead, but he saw the outlines of cell walls and suddenly began to realize that what seemed continuous, a piece of cork, was in fact made up of what he called a great many little boxes, Now, Hooke wasn't... He didn't make much of it. He sort of drew it and then sort of went on to his other many thousand pursuits. There was a about a decade later, give or take, there was a a Dutch cloth trader, uh, cloth merchant, uh, never trained in science, uh, had barely any scientific vocabulary, who decided to invent another kind of microscope, a simple microscope, to look at the quality of thread... The Netherlands was like a booming uh, nexus of, of, of cloth trade. And he was in Delft, and he decided that he was going to look at the thread. And then one day, he thought, you know, why don't I use this microscope to look at a drop of water? And inside that drop of rainwater, he found hundreds of single cells, we now think protozoa, but various kinds of animals. He called them animal You have this wonderful story about him, you know, he... He looked at his own semen and found sperm, uh, which he called genital animalcules. Um, we can talk about that story in a second. And um, went on and on and on. I mean, he looked at, you know, um, he, he looked at human tissue, and he started writing letters to the to the Royal Society, where of course Hook was then the the president, and realized, and Hook realized that in fact what he had seen in these little boxes was all over. It was all over the animal kingdom. These little Swimming animal pews. Now this is before cell theory is established. This is just people finding and looking at cells, and that's how that's the first time anyone ever saw a cell. I know you've seen, you've used oh, one of uh, the microscopes. That yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, you didn't have to bring it up here, but uh, <laughs> there's, I mean, the story behind the semen is, is that um, he wrote all of these letters up, and he was ignored
2: by the Royal Society exactly, yeah,
1: because he wasn't a gentle, a bewigs gentleman of science, and he wrote in Dutch.
2: Yeah, and very colloquially. Yeah. Would, yeah.
1: Um, so he didn't publish his observations of his own semen, but he is the first person to see his sperm. It's just a line... The reason Sid's bringing this up is because there's a line in his notes, which are unpublished, in which he says that he acquired this sample not by sinfully defiling himself, but as a, a natural byproduct of conjugal coitus. <laughs> which is so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> And, and the second reason he's mentioning this now is because a few years ago I made a documentary in which we went to the, the Van Leeuwenhoek Museum and we also looked at a similar sample. Which, <laughs> yes.
2: Was we'll, mine. Uh, we'll keep it at that. Yes.
1: Um, it, it was an no all, one was uh, expecting to talk to me. No, people. no. <laughs> I mean, it was on BBC Four, so no one saw it anyway. Um, anyway, so Van Leeuwenhoek is the first person to see any cell, and he sees protist sort of amoeba and he sees his sperm he sees blood cells he sees bacterial plaque from between his his teeth and he sends it off to the royal society no one takes him seriously because he's he writes in common dutch but hook is the person that he persists with and he he is the man who has the revelation and goes i think this guy might be onto something
2: yes that's right so so hook actually does publish his work um he translates it he does publish his work and 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 is, a, is, is as I said he's a really bizarre character because having made this discovery he then refuses to let anyone look at look through his microscopes which is totally bizarre but he's extraordinarily secretive because he thinks that someone's going to steal this his 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 microscope um, he's made he makes about 500 of them if you ever have a chance there's one in Cambridge there are many in in the Lowenhook Museum but they're really very beautiful uh, they're small little plates with lenses that he would make himself. And the uh,
1: lenses are tight. They don't look like... You know, when you think of a microscope, you think of the thing, and you look down like that. But they're, they're
2: little plates. Yeah, they're plates. The little things, and you hold them up to the sun, and you have to put a drop of water in front of it. I, I made one, uh, a very bad one. But uh, it was COVID, and I had nothing else to do except to <laughs> make a Loewenhock <laughs> microscope. Did it work? Uh, yes, it did work, actually, after a lot of time. Try- I mean, these days it's easier because you can... Uh, you can order the plate, and you can order a plate with a you know with a with with a, with a hole in it, and you can order the lens. So it's it's. Why I didn't have to blow and so blow my own glass and grind my own glass lens. Because the lens itself,
1: the I mean, lens, I could nerd very, out on this, and we mustn't, because I'm an optics nerd. But it's like a little peppercorn. It's round, it's spherical.
2: It's it has to be very it has to be very accurately made. Um, it has to be ground to perfection, um, because otherwise you get aberrations and you can't see anything. But anyway, we'll. That's the optics piece of it.
1: I mean, we could we could we could just talk about the history um, for easily for an hour because it is such a it's it's really the birth of biology and it's the it's foundational to the, the, the Royal Society and this is we're in what was Gresham College here which is very closely associated with the, that anyway we could talk about that for hours and we won't because we need to move on. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV.
0: Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle, and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the
1: world of the arts like never before. But So Van Leeuwenhoek sees these cells for the first time and it begins to develop, it, it turns into over the next century or so into what becomes what we've described as the sort of one of the grand unifying theories of biology, that all life is made of cells. But it takes a weird dinner party for, for this, this unification to happen with yes. a bunch of odd characters, yes. which, is, which you described brilliant, beautifully yeah. in the introduction. What, what
2: happens? So um, there are two students, uh, Schleiden and Schwann, and they're both unusual characters. One of them is a lawyer-turned-botanist, and he's a lawyer-turned-botanist because he hates law... He tries to shoot himself, uh, but he misses, and so... Uh, <laughs> That's not funny,
1: but it's just at the dinner party, he's got a massive scar on his head yes. when he invents cell biology. Yes,
2: so he's, he's, he, and, 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 then, and then a zoologist. And what, uh, what Schleiden, uh, he's, he's looking at, um, he's work, they both worked in Germany under uh, Johannes Müller, and he's been looking at the development of plants uh, as a botanist and he's been seeing some commonalities. But the most important commonality, which he will state later, is that um, when he sees the plant developing, he sees them forming through cells. He sees the, act, the, the process of, of formation of a, an organism through cells. And at this dinner party uh, in Berlin, And the the, the zoologist says, well, wait a second, I've been looking at the growth of of animals, um, and I, too, have been seeing the the formation of the organism through cells. And so they, they sort of drag each other to the microscope, and very soon they realize that they've stumbled on a common phenomenon that seems to link the plant world and the animal world, and that is that both animals and plants are formed through cells, and so they make the first tenets of, of cell biology that all animals are formed animals and plants are formed through cells and in fact that all all organisms are 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 made of uh, are made of cells. So so they lay down the basis of cell biological theory, the universality. Lots of people had seen cells before, Leuwenhoek talked a lot about, we talked about, but no one had made the the incredibly audacious claim that in fact across the entire animal and plant and other kingdoms that everything was a cell. Every living creature was made of cells.
1: And so that's the first part of yeah. cell theory. Cell theory comes in, in, yes. in two parts. The first is that all life is made of cells. And then the second part comes a few years later. And it, and it also is based in Germany. It's based out, out of Berlin. But an, another amazing story about how, so where cells come from. Because if all life is made of cells, and these these people like Schwann and Schleiden and others are looking at how they develop, how organisms develop, embryology is a big thing at that time, as it is today. But there was a question of where cells come from in the first place. And for the previous 2,000 years, uh, there was an assumption that they just... Sprang out of nowhere; that they spontaneously generated, and that turns out to be not true.
2: Right. So, so now we move a little bit further ahead in time. Um, A young, thirty odd year old pathologist in Germany um, is studying cells, cell biology. Particularly, he's a pathologist, particularly interested in uh, leukemia. And so he he picks up on work done by others, and he makes the third claim, or perhaps the second big claim, which is that. All cells come from other cells. Now, again, all of us know this. It seems very obvious today. But there was a huge debate uh, going on at that point of time about where cells came from. And even Schleiden, uh, the inventor of cell theory, thought that cells sort of crystallized out of some vital fluid. There's a theory called vitalism, and in fact, also people still believe it, that in fact there's something special, uh, that we're not just sort of chemical soups, uh, walking around, there's something special in our chemical soup. There's some special seasoning um, that makes life life. And what Verkau was saying is, in some ways, he was saying there's no special seasoning. It's life comes from life, cells come from cells, and that's the way we grow. We grow out from a single cell by that by the division of that cell into two cells, into four cells, into eight, and so forth, and 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 and. and, and until we get the several trillion cells that, that, that make up a make up a make up a body. So, um, and and in Latin that's omniscellula acellula from cells come from cells. Very radical in its time because of this these countervailing theories that they of spontaneous generation, vitalism, and and, and etc. But then Virchow matures as a as a physician scientist, and I it, the book is almost dedicated to him. I like the word almost dedicated. It's like a, um, you, 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 he sort of just missed the mark. Mm. But anyway... Um, and
1: he kind of nicked the idea a little bit off someone else, didn't he? Yes,
2: he... he, he well, Omnicellular is, is an idea that, that actually existed before him um, in other work, but he, he sort of brought it out of history and, oh, and, yeah. and, 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 and stamped it. But the next two ideas are, are absolutely his, and they're also foundational. But the next idea is that all uh, human physiology is the consequence of cellular physiology. Um, Now let's pause and and contemplate that idea for a second. This is in 1840 something or the other. And here is someone saying that everything that we are and do, our bodies do, is a consequence of cells doing something. The fact that we can regulate salt and water, the fact that our brains think, the fact that you and I are having this conversation it's all a consequence of cells doing something to enable that to happen. You know, the environment, behavior, chance, life happens around it, but ultimately it has to go down to the cell to be the actor of it. You know, the fact that there's blood rushing through our veins and, and arteries, it, it, there's a consequence of that, and that is that, that you know, oxygen is being delivered. And and nutrients are, you know, waste products are being cleared. So this very central idea, all normal physiology is a consequence of cellular physiology, is also radical. And then he just turns that idea on its head. It's the mirror image. And he argues that if that's the case, then all disease, so he gets even more radical now, He, he argues that all disease must be a disease that is an aberration or dysfunction of cells. So all of a sudden, we have a theory of how the body is made, what makes the body, how cells are born, how physiology occurs, and how and why disease occurs. And with that, you get a a complete new universe, as it were, of biology and medicine and cell biology, etc.
1: These are some of the biggest ideas that anyone's ever had in biology, along with natural selection and universal genetics, and that's why we sing their praises. But I think it is so radical. Because if you think, about, you think about how we now know that we start as a single cell, an egg that's being fertilised by a sperm, the biggest cell in the human body and the smallest cell in the human body combine, and that's where all life starts. But the implications of the, first part, or the second part of cell theory, that all cells come from other cells is a really brain-scrambling concept because it means that that egg cell came from another cell, which means you can trace the lineage of that through your mind.
2: Now you're asking a very interesting question, yeah.
1: And then it means you can go back all the way through the history of life on Earth, that when you cut your finger or when you get a bleeding gum or you graze your knee and the cells that grow to repair that damage, they are part of... A lineage which starts four billion years ago and is unbroken.
2: And that's incredible, right? So, if you really think about that idea as unbroken, uh, the unbroken lineage. In other words, you could, if you could draw that infinite tree, that infinite tree of trillions of cells that we all have in common plus the other trillion that are in bacteria, plus the other trillion that more than a trillion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you were to take that entire lineage tree and wind the clock backwards, and wind it backwards, and wind it backwards, and wind it backwards, you would end up with one cell. The mother of all life. That was a very pregnant pause. I know, I just,
1: <laughs> just wanted to let that land because it is the, it's the biggest idea. That there is. It is the greatest story ever told. We call that cell LUCA, the yeah. last universal common ancestor, and we think it started... Well, I, I, I'm part of a, a branch of science that thinks that it started at the bottom of the ocean, possibly in hydrothermal vents about 3.9 billion years ago, but from LUCA, which divided and divided for the next two billion years, for the next four, the next two billion years after that. And when you do anything... Those, the, sec, the, other, the third part of, of, of what you're saying, any interaction you have with the rest of the universe is modulated by a lineage which started four billion years ago. These are big,
2: big thoughts, and, and I think we don't talk about them much, do we? Yes, I think, I think, we, uh, the, I think, I think it's partly because the, the mind boggles a little bit mm. uh, at, at the thought. Um, but, it's, but, but they're true, I mean... From that, there's been lots of attempts to create, and as you know, there are lots of competing theories about where the 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 Luca w- uh, was existed or was born, or how. There are theories about the, the, the most. I think the most accepted theory is that wherever it was, whether in the hydrothermal vent or in or in clay uh, uh, layers of clay. Um, there was uh, the the birth of of, uh, a molecule, probably RNA, um, as far as we know, and which had either by itself or as a partner the capacity to duplicate itself. But that is not life, because, um, as I explain in the book, if the original uh, molecule and its duplicator drifted away, then that would be the end of life. Uh, It would be like lovers who had been lost forever, and none of us would exist, and nor would... Uh, the Mona Lisa Um, there would be no there would be nothing so these two molecules or whether it was one molecule is a question mark um, had to create a membrane around themselves Um, and that membrane is made out of fat so they had to be fat molecules and what's amazing is that in laboratories like Jack Szostak's lab and other labs um, you can actually make these protocells you can create artificially a blob of, of fat which resembles in many ways the membranes that our cells have very primitively and if you keep adding more and more fat molecules to them as they absorb more fat molecules these protocells divide now these are completely lifeless remember they have no none of the functions of life they don't respire they don't but they have one quality of life which is that they can they have autonomous Cell division; they can, they can split themselves. And if you keep adding more fat, then those two will split themselves further. Now, if you enclose that, or, or if you take that and enclose within that box a, a molecule that can duplicate itself and carries information, you all of a sudden begin to, again, this uh, walk through the thought for a moment with me. You, you, you've, got a, you've got a membrane, you've got a little box, and inside that box you've placed a machine that can duplicate itself, make another copy of itself, so that when the box divides, that piece of information also divides. And now you can encode that piece of information, and that piece of information can start making things. It can start doing things, it can make more copies of itself, and so forth. And now you begin to start thinking, is that life? And We're sort of at the edge of, of, of what might be Luca, or, or, or something, and wherever it happened, that's one prominent theory. There are many other theories that we, we won't talk about. But yeah,
1: no, I mean, we could, we could, I, honestly we could spend another hour talking about that. But let's let's leap forward. So we've gone we've gone back four billion years. We've done the 17th, 18th, into the 19th century. So let's talk about the third part of Verhulst's idea that when cells go wrong, this is the ontogeny of of disease. Cancer is a cellular disease. It is the unregulated growth of cells.
2: Well, I mean, you know, Virchow himself saw saw this. Uh, He was examining a patient and he found uh, leukemia, um, in fact, named it leukemia. Cells have an incredible quality, which is that, another quality of cells is that they start dividing and stop dividing. It is one of the qualities of life. Um, Whenever I have graduate students, I ask them, the first question I ask, my graduate students says, when you cut yourself, why don't you grow a new arm um, like a tree? And the answer is we know some of the answer to that question, but not all the answer to the question. A wound heals and continues to heal, and when the cells meet each other, they pass signals to each other to stop dividing, and that's your wound that's healed. Cancer, in cancer, those signals are broken through genetic mutations, and that's the fundamental basis of cancer. We can talk about many, many other features of cancer, but the fundamental base of cancer is a cell where the normal regulation of cell division has been disrupted, and thereby you're get, you start getting a cell that can't stop dividing and keeps dividing as a consequence of genetic mutations.
1: Mm. And cancer as well is, you know, incredibly sophisticated and evolving thing as it's, as it's growing, a tumour that becomes... Uh, the mutations accumulate as, as they grow and spread around the body and release cells with no purpose other than to keep growing. There's no foresight in cancer other than to, to make more cells, to well, the detriment of the, of the organism.
2: Well, so cancer, in some ways, goes back to your first question. Cancer is a distortion of the three principles of life. It's a distortion of genetics, it's a distortion of cell biology, and it's a distortion of evolution. Because the cancer cell is always evolving, and because as it evolves, it changes, mutations accumulate, it, it changes its own characteristics, it can co-opt uh, properties from normal genes and, and make them uh, properties of cancer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a fascinating thing that the disease that is now becoming the disease that sort of defines our century is, happens to be the disease that sits on top of disruptions of the three universal principles of life.
1: Mm. And so fundamental to all aspects of, of biology. Not we are in, just talking about humans here. Let, let, let's think about therapies, though. But we're, we're, you know, having established that cancer is a, a cellular disease, it is a misfunction of those those principles. We can also utilise. We can mutate genes in cells. We can use cell therapies in order to cure loads of diseases, including cancers now?
2: Right. So, um, I mean, the, the, some of the prominent cell therapies, and again, this is why I sometimes have to stay up nights in, in because India's 12 hours away, we've, we've started pioneering cell therapies in India. And I think it's the proudest thing I've ever done. It's the proudest moment of my life, because um, when I saw the first child that we saved with cell therapy... Was a was a ten year old boy, so just uh, I'll just tell you the, the st- how it works and then talk a little bit about that in a moment. But um, the you can use a T cell. T cells are normal cells that go and kill other cells, and you can genetically reprogram it outside the body. I can take your T cells, draw it out, draw them out of your body, genetically reprogram them to kill your cancer, reinject them in your body, um, and that now it's called a CAR T cell. And I won't explain what CAR stands for. You can just um, imagine it as, as a modified, genetically modified, weaponized T cell, and we reinfuse those T cells in the body, and they go and kill the cancer. And they're actually vastly more effective than most chemotherapies. Um, these are for patients with relapsed, refractory leukemias and lymphomas and myelomas, blood cancers uh, mostly. Um, but as I said, it was, it, it is by far the proudest moment of my life when, when this boy who was, had re- relapsed refractory leukaemia, 10 years old, came alive uh, with his, his CAR T-cells.
1: And is that, is that type of therapy, is that only for blood cancers, of which there
2: are many? Yes. yes. Um, so right now, for reasons we don't fully understand, these T-cells don't seem to like going and killing solid tumours, which are also, which are are the majority of tumors, even though there are many blood cancers. And we don't know exactly why. We have some clues why, but one of the scariest images I've ever seen in my life is a solid tumor with a ring of activated T cells all around it. But those T cells, for some reason, can't penetrate. These solid tumors make substances that somehow prevent the uh, access to T cells. I guess the bigger question, uh, just to carry on, uh, riff on this theme a little bit, um, is this idea of, of the new human um, and that's a very prov- provocative idea in this title um, it's called The Exploration of Medicine and the New Human and what I'm trying to convey in that is that the new human is not a sort of sci-fi infrared equipped character um, with prosthetics and, 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 and vision you know what I say uh, Keanu Reeves in a black mumu. Um that's not the new human The new human is a human that we're building prosthetically in some ways with cells, either their own cells that have been genetically engineered or cells that we've borrowed from other bodies as in a bone marrow transplant. Um, There's an incredible example here of um, a a psychiatrist, a a woman in New York, who's been pioneering, um, and other people have too, placing electrodes into the brain, very deep into the brain. These electrodes are thinner than human hair. And finding an exact uh, spot where certain nerve cells are responsible, going back to Virchow, for devastating neurological diseases like Parkinson, but in her, in her case, depression. Um, and when she turns the current on, um, these neurons, these nerve cells, uh, respond, and, and you get, some people get relief from really recalcitrant depression, things that no drug, no therapy works. Um, so these are examples of... of what I call new humans. These are people that are, are, that are walking amongst us. Someone, with a, someone carrying a bone marrow from someone else's body is walking amongst us today. Someone carrying electrodes will start walking amongst us. And that's because we are build, having the capacity, the joint capacity of genetic engineering and cellular engineering has created the ability to create what I call a new human.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That mix as well is fascinating. You talk in the book about how women, exclusively women, often, mostly, carry the cells of either unknown pregnancies or pregnancies that have resulted in births. And those cells of the child just float around their bodies or they sometimes they land and do things. And actually, you know, looking over the audience, many of you will be carrying the cells of someone who is not you, actually only the women. If you're a man and carrying those cells, you need to go to the doctor. <laughs> but isn't that, again, just a, you know, a, a crazy idea, which, which is sort of post that 19th century bubble of, of, of discovery? But That's no.
2: right. In fact, there are three papers today in Nature. I opened Nature this morning. There are three papers in Nature back to back that finally describe, and that's why it's not in the book because it was published yesterday, uh, that finally describe how and why we can live with all these microbiota in in our guts. Because if T cells are there to recognize, and B cells are there to recognize pathogens, then why aren't we constantly eliminating all the bugs that live inside us, which are really important for us, important for our digestion, our uh, you know, so many functions now coming out, and outnumber, and outnumber human beings, like by, ten by. to one or whatever. Exactly. It is, yeah. And and what was amazing about it is that until this morning, we didn't know.
1: So the second edition of the Song of the Cell will be out soon with okay. that added
2: to That's it. That's right, twice as thick. So. Twice as thick. And you can write again.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, I am going to open it up for, to, to questions now, so you can bring the lights up. Uh, so rules for questions, these are my rules. Um, so put your hand up. Questions are short sentences that end with an upwards inflection. <laughs> the second rule is, and this is based on published research, this is not me being politically correct but if in question and answer sessions women ask questions first then more women ask questions but if men ask questions first then women tend not to so we'll take questions from women and men alternating your first and the third rule is try not to be mad
2: hi doctor professor Um, mind-body connection i mean there's a lot of talk about uh, possibly cancer coming from childhood trauma and from uh, actual thoughts what are your thoughts on that yeah, I'm not a believer in it at all. Um, I don't think that cancer comes from trauma. I think people who are traumatised have a hard time dealing with cancer, in the sense that they often don't. They can ignore it. They can have problems with it. But um, I don't think that the ca- that trauma can in any way directly affect our, our 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 genetics. Now, there's one caveat to that, which is that that um, there is a strong relationship between inflammation and cancer, very well established, Um, and a strong relationship also between inflammation and stress, similarly well established. Um, The word stress is a meaningless word. Uh, It means something to you. It means something else to us. But when I'm talking about stress and I'm talking about stress as inflammation, um, I do think that there's a relationship between inflammation and cancer. So if that's the lineage you're following, I think there's there's something very productive there. But uh, again, the word trauma is it means different things to different people. It has no meaning to geneticists. So I don't think that that's the reason for for, for cancer.
3: Uh, Thank you. Um, My question was around, I'm curious when you're researching this book, what was the evolution of, you know, when you talk about these, the idea of cell biology, you know, going back to this one cell, Luca, um, how did this evolve in concert or was perhaps stymied by religious thought at the time?
2: Well, vitalism is very important in, in religious thought, and spontaneous generation is also very important in religious thought. And so, both, so vitalism claims that you have this vital fluid that is special, and in fact that vital fluid comes to you from God. At least one school of vitalists believe that, not all vitalists. Um, and spontaneous generation is similar, um, in the sense that you are generated spontaneously, and similarly cells are generated spontaneously, The 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 interesting thing about cell theory, unlike evolution, and to some extent unlike genetics, cell theory doesn't didn't violate at least fundamental Christian principles and therefore was allowed to evolve, I mean if you read the history, it was allowed to evolve quite independently once that vitalism and and spontaneous generation were sort of set aside. And it was only much, much later than they, they began to intersect with, with, with religion again. I'll give you one example of that, and there are many. Um, it's much later when you have IVF, and you now have uh, genetic engineering of uh, potentially of human babies, that all of a sudden embryonic stem cells, much, much later, years, almost a century later, when, when, the, when, when religion all of a sudden wakes up and says, wait a second, so it's very unlike evolution, or at least Darwinia, Darwin's idea of evolution and neo-Darwinism, et cetera, et cetera, which did have a much more um, conflicting relationship with, uh, with religion.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah I was, yes, I was thinking I could comment on that, but I won't. Um, why, why
2: don't you comment well,
1: on I, I mean, that? Well, I'm think i not disagreeing with you at all. I think, I think one, of the th- one of the relationships, one of the ways we characterise religion and its relationship with science is, I think often, is a sort of false dichotomy, but actually religions are very... Um, tend to be, specifically Judeo-Christian religions, tend to be quite fluid in the way that they bounce in and out of scientific ideas. And there was much less resistance to Darwinian thinking than is often perceived in the 1850s and 60s. And it's only really 50 years later that, re- that, that fundamentalists in America primarily become regard evolution by natural selection as, as problematic. With, with cells... What Sid just said is absolutely correct. But what what I was thinking is that the injection of the soul into into the fertilized egg occurs at multiple times, depending on which religion you're a member of and how that religion has changed over time. And so, as, for example, Christians become more fundamental in America, the insolification... What's the word? Not insolification...
2: Perse- sol- well, per- let's, let's, go,
1: let's go with insolification. Insolification exactly <laughs> uh, occurs at at fertilisation, and that's new. That's a that's a new description that is really less than, you know, 40 years old. Um, so religion is much more flexible than than doctrinal. Um, so so those relationships are always always changing. That, that was just what I was thinking as you were answering. Anyway, um, the lady on the right hand side, because I'm alternating, and then you. So.
2: Um, as we mentioned that uh, the cancer cells uh, negate the three principles of life, and given that cancer cells to a certain extent are immortal or they try to bypass all the mechanism that life prevents to direct them, is there something to be learned from cancer cells as a mechanism to actually treat and or as a mechanism for longevity itself, just like viruses have been used to Treat certain diseases. Is there something to be learned from cancer? There's lots. There's there's lots and lots of things to be learned from cancer in terms of longevity, metabolism, and uh, and and we're still learning uh, migration. uh, uh, You know how to build an organ. um, Cancer's um, the relationship between stem cell biology, which is a rejuvenative medicine, and cancer is very very close. Often the genes that control stem cell biology and the capacity to rejuvenate and keep rejuvenating are genes that have originally been described in cancer, um, and they're either mutated or somehow altered in, in, um, in, in cancer cells. So there's, there's an enormous wealth of literature already there, but much, much more to be learned about how we could use under our understanding of cancer cells potentially to alter metabolism, to alter uh, longevity, and so forth.
3: Uh, two questions, really, so I'll start with the trivial one did you
2: ask the management to get your coffee table with a double helix under it? Well, that's a good question. No, the, <laughs> the answer is it just came naturally. It's actually not a double helix, I think. it's a no, uh, uh, under the coffee table. Yes, I, mean. I see under the coffee table. It's a single helix, uh, oh, but nonetheless.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. No. <laughs> uh, the second one is about, really about, and you've tackled it in the gene as well. Uh, the why versus how. So over decades and centuries of research and by people like you and academicians and clinicians we've been able to understand a lot of how things have happened how evolution has shaped us the way we are Uh, but why did it happen i know there's really no answer to that question but every time i speak with my mom who's based out of delhi and she's read all your books and she says it's all because of god I and mean, then she understands. She's she's a scientific person, but she says, "How did it begin? Like the first two blobs of RNA? Why did they get together?" Because there's really no argument that I have when she says oh, It's just something
2: that is a divine intervention.
1: Okay. So remember, short sentences that end with art, <laughs> and "Why? Why? Why did life why, well, why,
2: So, why did... so the, the 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 quick answer is is biologists, and I would suspect scientists in general, have no mechanisms to answer why questions. Uh, we have mechanisms to answer how questions. Why questions, sometimes physicists can answer based on energetics and the laws of energetics, which thermodynamics basically. Um, biologists have a very limited toolkit to answer why questions, aside from evolution and you know those fundamental theories. So um, it's it, it, asking a, a biologist a, a why question, you'll almost always end up with a how answer. Um, and uh, that's just the way that, that, that science works.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, think that the, I think that looking at energetics and looking at the physics of, of energy, which are sort of uh, you know, non-transferable, immutable laws of the universe... Sometimes can be useful.
2: Yes, they can be. Yeah. For, 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 for why questions. For, why, for, for, for biological questions. And, so. and, and, and therefore, by extension, for biological questions. But in general, if you, as I said, if you ask a biologist the why question, you'll end up with a how answer.
1: Yeah. And also, sometimes you end up with the answers which are not that interesting. Because what you actually want to... I'm not interested in what a cell is. I'm interested in what a cell does. Because... The, the, we, we, we sometimes define things in sort of with, with taxonomic.
2: Yeah, and it's, like, a, it's an, an ontological question yeah, rather than a, exactly. rather than a yeah. mechanistic question.
1: Sometimes cells are described as pre-cancerous and they revert to normal in, in due course. I don't know whether this is a shorthand that means something else, but why would those cells? Uh, do that, and are they predisposed towards normality or towards division?
2: So the quick answer is we don't know, but, I, I, but, but the phenomenon is correct. So, so there, there are cancers that don't become cancers. Um, if you do autopsies on, for instance, uh, this big famous study, autopsies on random uh, victims of car accidents, uh, women, um, and it's a relatively random sample, you find that there are tumors in their breast which um, seem to have done nothing. Um, and often they're old enough that they would have become breast cancer by that time. These are all hypotheses, this is not a real randomized experiment. But it seems that cancers don't, we're now realizing, and there's a lot about this in, in, in the book, we're now realizing that to become a cancer, you, having the mutated genes is not enough. You need to have uh, more than, that, than the mutated genes. You need to co-opt metabolism in certain ways. You need to be in a certain place. You need to create a home for yourself. You need to draw out blood vessels and so forth. There's a whole process. Um, and that process is not only the mutation of genes. And so you can find things that look like cancer and, in fact, may even have the set of mutated genes, but they, aren't, they don't behave like cancers because they don't have the invasive properties that cancers have.
1: One of the things that's changed in cancer biology recently in the last few years is that we used to think of cancers as just being these sort of homogenous masses. Yes. And whereas we are very heavily differentiated tissue with different types in in our skin and layers, and you know, eye cells are different from muscle cells and so on. And now what we're discovering is that cancers are much more sophisticated. They're not just lumps, they have their own tissue
2: types within them. That's right.
1: So, how, how. I think you know, a question a lot of people want to know is, when are we going to find a cure for cancers?
2: Well, so again, the, the, the plural is the important word. Um, when you say plural, it's not, not only cancers, it's cancers in a single body um, has different cell types. And one of the theories about why we have different responses to chemotherapy is that you kill the cells that are susceptible to chemo, but the cells that are not susceptible to chemo in that same cancer uh, are, are not killed. And this is partly why, actually, and I've written about this, this is partly why immunological therapy can be very effective. Because the immune system doesn't particularly care what mutations you have. The immune system cares about, you know, whether you have or don't have an antigen, whether you have or don't have a protein that's a marker or a flag. Um, and that's one of the advantages of the immune system. It, it, it's, it's indiscriminate in its capacity to kill and therefore has been quite successful in treating some particular cancers.
1: And that's a big sort of growth area for cancer therapy. That's
2: correct, yeah, yeah. absolutely.
1: Hi. Um, in, your, well, in your opinion, what are the most uh, exciting developments or research going on at the moment?
2: I'm particularly... I mean, you know, people have different interests. Um, Adam might have different interests and in, in, in different directions that he would take that question. I'm particularly interested in immunological therapy um, and the variations of immune therapy. Um, I'm particularly interested in... The fact that, I mean, again, this might surprise you, but um, recently we've discovered that we can take a a skin cell from your body and make it into an embryonic-like cell. And that skin cell can then give rise to neurons and uh, muscle cells and cartilage, and so they are called induced, induced because they've been induced, pluripotent because they have the potency of making all of these cells um, uh, stem cells, so iPS cells. And, And these cells are... Absolutely fascinating. Um, they can be made into various different cell types. There's some uh, there's some concern about how to regulate them, but uh, but they are you know they become essentially embryonic stem cell like and have have really infinite potential. Um, so I think that's a very very active area of research. People are trying to make, for instance, pancreatic cells that secrete insulin out of these cells out of I P S cells, and you can. Uh, people are trying to make uh, skin cells you can make um, a, a beating heart cell um, and potentially recreate, if you could have the scaffolding, potentially recreate a beating heart out of a skin cell that used to be perfectly normal skin cell. I think it's a fascinating area of research.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, actually, that is the, I would give the same answer. I did my PhD at Great Ormond Street, which is 100 yards from here. And, and what we were looking at was stem cells in the eye. So using, using stem cells to create... Uh, to repair damaged tissue in the retina. And that's now therapeutically available using exactly the techniques that, that Sid's describing there. So it's you know, incredibly, it's all derived from that work in the 19th century of understanding right. what cells are. And, and in fact, I,
2: I, I talk a little bit about, not IPS cells, but our lab discovered skeletal stem cells. Um, and we, we've been publishing on skeletal stem cells. And um, we just, about a couple of months ago, uh, so these cells make bone and cartilage. And people thought that once bone and cartilage had been formed, that, that, that there was, you, were, you were done. We found that, in, at least in adult uh, animals, there remains a population. It, it's a declining population, but there remains a population that continuously can, can give rise to cartilage as you grow along. So for the first time, about a, two months ago, we transplanted cartilage, cartilage stem cells, and made cartilage inside a, a joint um, and so, obviously, there's some very important therapeutic implications for that, particularly for neglected diseases like osteoarthritis, which is neglected partly because it affects women predominantly.
1: Can you fix my knee?
2: Um, I can try to fix my own knee first, but oh, then no, fine, I, fine. You, you, you go after. There's
1: me. a cue. We've got time for two more questions.
2: So, I guess this question is kind of different. Like, what advice do you have? or like, How do we go from someone like myself, like a medical student with like experience in research to, I guess, someone like you, like clinician, researcher, and, like, all of that. What advice do you have, I guess? Oh, gosh. Well,
1: re- um, the first thing to do is buy the book and read it. It's <laughs> like a guidebook.
2: <laughs> well, I'm very bad at, at advice, so um, I, I, try, I try not to give advice because uh, I, whenever I give someone advice, it turns out to be extremely <laughs> terrible advice. So um, uh, the... Um, I mean, I, uh, of course, I've been asked this question many times before, so I have a little bit of a pat answer to this, but um, but it's not pat because it applies to my own life. I, I think that um, I think that work-life balance is overrated, and I think you you shouldn't have it. Um, Which
1: one shouldn't you have?
2: <laughs> the work or the life? Life. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, and uh, you know, you, you, I, I think I, I think life or leisure, um, can live very well in the interstices of, of work. And there's so much work to do, there's so much to fix, and it seems to be getting worse every day. Um, and so um, I, I, I realize it's, it's a bad answer, it's probably very bad advice, but, uh, so don't, don't take it, but that's, um, that's the advice I usually give.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go with very bad advice <laughs> on that. Take as much time as you, as you can, live life to the full. <laughs> I've tried to my near my life, so I do as little work as possible. Very bad at it. Uh, on, the, on the right there. In the uh, one, one, time for one more after that. <laughs> um, as a complete layperson, I was struck by uh, you saying that cells make up the central nervous system. Um, or, or they're part of the nervous system. So putting cancer to one side, which is a big statement, how much is the cure to... Or, or addressing things like motor neurone disease... Parkinson's, ataxia, all all based in cells rather than any other attack.
2: Yeah, I think you know the the, the treatments for the for diseases of the nervous system is still lagging behind uh, by about ten years. Partly because the mechanism of many of these uh, degenerative diseases is not known. One major problem with degenerative diseases—it's a very major problem—and perhaps unrecognized—is that. In order to regenerate something, you need to start with something to regenerate. And typically, when you have a degenerative disease, and this applies across all degenerative diseases, that cell, which is capable of regeneration, is gone. And you can't bring it back unless you go this iPS cell route. That's really been maybe a potential escape hatch for for, for a lot of us. So, So by the time, clinically speaking, by the time these patients come to our attention... Um, the cells that could, we could potentially regenerate using drugs or other, th- other things are gone. So that leaves us with cellular therapies, and it leaves us with the possibility of uh, either transplanting cells from someone else's body or using this escape hatch of, uh, of IPS cells or ES cells from their own body so that they won't get rejected uh, and inject them into, into, um, into those uh, areas. So I think two efforts are very important here. One is to detect early, Um, and there are multiple multiple, uh, efforts going on to to uh, to detect early. Um, And then the second one is uh, once detected, either find drugs or cellular therapies uh, to help. I should say that early studies um, with uh, these electrodes in Parkinson's disease and in OCD and others have, have been very promising, so it's possible that you could, you could bypass the missing cells or the dysfunctional cells, go, uh, as, as we say in biology, downstream of them, and activate a circuit that would, would help uh, with, with some of these uh, therapies, but that's still uh, early days.
1: Well, it is all early days because we are still at the beginning of this amazing forefront of where basic science meets therapy. We're out of time. Um, Sid is gonna be signing books. Uh, through the doors as soon as we've finished. Please buy this book. It is a, it's another masterpiece. It's quite annoying that he's managed to knock out three in a row. It's specifically annoying for me, but there it is. But <laughs> well, put, thank you, Adam. And you've it is my absolute pleasure, but let me just ask you to put your hands together for Dr. Siddhartha. Mikhail.
0: This episode starred Siddhartha Mukherjee and was presented by Adam Rutherford. The producers were myself and Esme Bright, and we make the series with help from Nicole Wong. You'll find my interview with Adam on the ugly history of eugenics in our archive. If you enjoyed the show this week, please do rate, review, and subscribe. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.